0: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. This is Democracy Now!
1: Dina Boluarte is not our president. Let the people elect her, then I will recognize her as president. But the people didn't elect her. The people elected Pedro Castillo, and he is our president. We will work with him.
0: Protesters in Peru took to the streets after the Peruvian president, Pedro Castillo, was ousted and arrested. Shortly after attempting to dissolve Congress ahead of a vote to impeach him, Castillo's vice president has now been sworn in as president. We'll get the latest. Plus, we go to Moscow to speak with a prominent Russian Marxist dissident, as Vladimir Putin admits the war in Ukraine will be a long process. We'll also look at a historic Supreme Court case that could upend democracy in the United States.
2: If the sur- Supreme Court sides with the state legislature in this case, then it can change how our elections are conducted, in part because state legislatures will be free to, for example, gerrymander congressional districts, um, reduce the time for certain uh, accommodations they make for voters, including um, early voting or um, the receipt of, of late ballots or,
0: it, it, or so on. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Supreme Court heard arguments Wednesday in Moore v. Harper, a case with far-reaching implications for voting rights. During three hours of debate, justices considered a bid by North Carolina Republican lawmakers to overturn a state Supreme Court ruling that redrew North Carolina's congressional map due to partisan gerrymandering. The plaintiffs want the Supreme Court to embrace the independent state legislature theory, which would hand state lawmakers Weeping authority to override courts, governors, and state constitutions. Attorney Neil Katyal argued against the theory on behalf of North Carolina voting rights groups.
3: I'm not sure I've ever come across a theory in this court that would invalidate more state constitutional clauses as being federally unconstitutional, hundreds of them from the founding to today the blast radius from their theory would sow elections chaos, forcing a confusing two-track system with one set of rules for federal elections and another for state ones.
0: We'll have more on the Supreme Court case later in the broadcast. In Peru, President Pedro Castillo was impeached and arrested Wednesday after he attempted to dissolve Congress and install an emergency government. Lawmakers accused Castillo of attempting a coup, and Peru's top court declared the move unconstitutional. The dramatic turn of events came as Castillo faced his third impeachment vote since taking office just a year and a half ago, vowing to tackle poverty and heal the wounds of colonialism. Castillo's vice president, Dina Boluarte, has been sworn in as Peru's first woman president. As we all know, there has been an attempted coup d'etat, an attempt pushed by Mr. Pedro Castillo, which has not found backing in the institutions of democracy and in the streets. This Congress of the Republic, per the constitutional mandate, has taken a decision and it is my duty to act accordingly. Ahead of his impeachment, Castillo, a former union leader and teacher, accused lawmakers of trying to blow up democracy, disregarding the will of the people. We'll have more on this story later in the broadcast. Ukraine's government says Russian artillery fire killed 10 people and wounded many others Wednesday in the eastern Donetsk region. The killings came as Ukraine's electrical grid operator announced new emergency power cuts to try to repair infrastructure damaged by Russia. This week, the United Nations reported more than 17,000 civilians have been killed since Russia's invasion, including 419 children. Matilda Bogner, the head of the U.N. human rights monitoring mission in Ukraine, released a report. Wednesday documenting summary executions of civilians by Russian troops in northern Ukraine during the first six weeks of the war.
4: Russian soldiers brought civilians to makeshift places of detention and then executed them in captivity. Many of the victims bodies were found with their hands tied behind their backs and gunshot wounds to their heads. Some victims were summarily executed on the spot civilians were targeted on roads while
0: moving within or between settlements, including while attempting to flee the hostilities. The U.N. report also documented torture, arbitrary detention and forced disappearances and sexual violence committed by Russian forces. In Moscow, President Vladimir Putin acknowledged Wednesday Russian forces may be fighting in Ukraine for a long time to come. His comments came as Ukraine's military claimed more than 93,000 U.S. Russian troops have been killed since the invasion in February. Later in the broadcast, we'll speak with Boris Kagarlitsky, the Marxist theorist. And Russian dissident. In Saudi Arabia, Chinese President Xi Jinping received a lavish welcome from Mohammed bin Salman Wednesday as she arrived for a three-day visit to Riyadh. China is Saudi Arabia's top oil importer, and Saudi media report the two nations are expected to sign agreements worth 30 billion dollars, including on information technology, transportation, and construction. Here in the U.S., over 100 groups urged Congress Wednesday to vote for Bernie Sanders' Yemen War Powers Resolution to end U.S. backing for Saudi Arabia's war and blockade in Yemen. On Tuesday, Sanders said he now has enough support to pass a resolution in the Senate, and he plans to bring his measure to a floor vote as early as next week. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces shot and killed three Palestinians during an early morning raid of the city of Jenin and its refugee camp. Two others were wounded by gunfire, one of them critically. It was the latest in a series of near daily raids by Israel on Palestinian communities. A local official accused Israeli snipers of firing indiscriminately.
5: Snipers were all over the buildings and on rooftops inside the city and the refugee camp. They were targeting anything that moved. Also, soldiers and military vehicles were shooting. Even an ambulance was targeted.
0: The Red Crescent showed reporters several bullet holes in an ambulance they said had been used to transport a wounded person. Schools, businesses, and stores have shut down across Janine today in a general strike to protest the killings. In Iraq, two people were killed and at least 16 others wounded after soldiers opened fire with live ammunition on a crowd of protesters in the southern city of Nazaria. About 300 people joined Wednesday's protest demanding freedom for a young activist who was sentenced to three years in prison for a social media post that mocked the commander of a Shiite paramilitary group. He was convicted on charges of publicly insulting a government institution or official. Iran's government has announced the first execution of a protester who was sentenced to die for joining anti-government protest. Mohsen Shakari was hanged earlier this morning after a revolutionary court found him guilty of enmity against God accusing him of rioting during a demonstration in Tehran in September. The protests erupted after the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in police custody, after she was arrested for allegedly wearing her hijab improperly. Amnesty International's condemned death sentences handed down to protesters, saying they followed, quote, "...grossly unfair trials marked by summary and predominantly secret processes." A Guatemalan court has sentenced former President Otto Pérez Molina and his vice president Roxana Baldetti each to 16 years in prison after they were found guilty on fraud and conspiracy charges. The pair stepped down in 2015, accused of benefiting from a customs graft scheme known as La Linea, which stole some $3.5 million in state money. The ex-leaders have vowed to appeal. In labor news in the United States, over 1,100 New York Times writers and other employees are on a 24-hour walkout to demand the newspaper bargain in good faith after their last contract expired in March 2021 amidst disputes over pay. It's the largest labor action the New York Times has seen since the 1970s. Unionized workers are asking New York Times readers to respect the digital picket line and instead use local news sources. For information. And Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg has revealed he was in possession of confidential documents containing evidence of U.S. war crimes leaked by former military analyst Chelsea Manning and given to him as backup by WikiLeaks.
3: I had possession of all the Chelsea Manning information before it came out in the press. Did you? I never said that publicly. Julian Assange had conveyed to me as a backup Mm. in case his was, you know, they caught him and they Mm. got everything. Mm. Uh, He could rely on me to find some way to get it out Mm. if I felt. So I had all that. And when I say that, I'm saying that by the current standing of the Department of Justice, I am, am now as indictable as Julian Assange and as everyone who put that information out.
0: Julian Assange has been jailed in Britain since his arrest in April 2019. The Biden administration's asking the British government to extradite him to the U.S., where he faces up to 175 years in prison on espionage and hacking charges. WikiLeaks fears his extradition could happen in the next few weeks. And this breaking news. Brittany Greiner has been released by Russia in a one-for-one prisoner swap for arms dealer Victor Boot, this according to U.S. officials. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheik. Hi, Nermeen.
4: Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world.
0: We begin today's show looking at the political crisis in Peru. On Wednesday, the Peruvian president, Pedro Castillo, was ousted from power and arrested hours after he moved to temporarily dissolve the Peruvian Congress. Castillo's vice president, Dina Baluarte, has been sworn in to replace him. Castillo is a left-leaning former teacher and union leader who was in office for less than a year and a half. Last year, he defeated Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of Peru's former dictator Alberto Fujimori. On Wednesday, Castillo made the dramatic announcement of dissolving Congress just before lawmakers were preparing their third attempt to impeach him on corruption charges. This is part of what Castillo said on Wednesday.
5: In response to citizens' demands throughout the length and breadth of the country, we've decided to establish an exceptional government aimed at reestablishing the rule of law and democracy, and therefore the following measures are dictated. Temporarily dissolve the Congress of the Republic and establish an exceptional emergency government.
0: Pedro Castillo's attempt to dissolve Congress was quickly rejected by members of Peru's Supreme Court. Within hours, Congress voted 101 to 6 to remove him from office for reasons of, quote, permanent moral incapacity. Then Castillo's vice president, Dina Baluarte, was sworn in as president, making her Peru's sixth president in seven years. She also becomes Peru's first ever female president. As we all know, there has been an attempted coup d'etat, an attempt pushed by Mr. Pedro Castillo, which has not found backing in the institutions of democracy and in the streets. This Congress of the Republic, per the constitutional mandate, has taken a decision, and it is my duty to act accordingly. Supporters of Pedro Castillo took to the streets of Lima Wednesday to denounce what they saw as the president's unjust removal of power, removal from power
1: is not our president. Let the people elect her. Then I will recognize her as president. But the people didn't elect her. The people elected Pedro Castillo, and he is our president. We will work with him. Now, if the people of Congress consider themselves so democratic, then respect the people's voice. Respect that we voted for Castillo.
0: On Wednesday, the United States quickly recognized Dina Baluarte as Peru's next president. However, Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador criticized Castillo's removal from power. AMLO said, quote, We consider it unfortunate that due to the interests of the economic and political elites from the beginning of Pedro Castillo's legitimate presidency, an environment of confrontation and hostility was maintained against him until it led him to make decisions that have served his adversaries to carry out his dismissal, AMLO said. To talk more about the political crisis in Peru, we're joined by Javier Puente. He's a Peruvian scholar who serves as associate professor and chair of Latin American and Latino Studies at Smith College. He's also the author of The Rural State, a book about campesino politics and state formation in the 20th century, Peruvian Andes. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Professor. It's great to have you with us. Can you explain what has just happened, the significance of what has taken place in Peru with the removal of the Peruvian President Castillo?
6: Amy, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you and your audience. Um, I think what we have witnessed yesterday is yet another episode in an enduring crisis that um, can be chronologically mapped in different terms. It can be seen as a 40-year cycle of crisis that goes all the way back to the coup d'etat orchestrated by Alberto Fujimori on April 5th, 1992, and that finished yesterday with this attempted coup by uh, Pedro Castillo. Mm -hmm. It can also be seen as this short-term crisis that started with um, um, Keiko Fujimori's frustration to seize power um, in 2016 and a constant removal of prescience through these very... um, dirty political maneuver of the Peruvian Congress of impeaching presidents since March of 2018 with the removal of uh, President Pedro Pablo Kuczynski. Uh, but uh, what is um, certain is that um, this is uh, yet another manifestation of the lack of institutional instability that the country has experienced for at least three decades as a result of um, the legacy of uh, Fujimorismo as perhaps the most important driving political force in the country. Um,
4: Javier, could you uh, give some uh, context? Why is it uh, that the Congress uh, in Peru made repeated attempts, this was the third, to impeach Castillo? What were they accusing him of?
6: Mm-hmm. Um, there is a very, there has been a very clear um, agenda of the Peruvian Congress since Castillo won the presidency in 2021 to remove him from power partly as a result of this frustration uh, coming, stemming from from Keiko Fujimori in yet another attempt uh, to win the presidency and and become the elected um, president of Peru. But on the other hand, um, I I think it's fair to say that there has been a very clear evidence of um, corruption allegations associated with uh, Castillo and Castillo's immediate um, political and uh, social circles. Um, I think the views around Castig- uh, the, the attempts, the congressional attempts to remove Castillo from power that seem to be so contradictory and so clashing, you know, on the one hand, it's either, you know, the Congress um, racist agenda to have a, 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 a campesino, a representative of campesino politics in the palace of government removed from it. Uh, it's not so much in contradiction with the idea that, yes, there was corruption, yes, the allegations of mismanagement of public funds and um, nepotism were present, were there. Um, So um, there is a possibility of seeing allegations of corruption and yet that deliberate congressional agenda to destabilize Castillo's administration as actually coexisting um, and, and, and being part of the same narrative.
4: Hey, Javier, what is your sense of how Castillo is perceived now uh, uh, among uh, Peruvians? There have been reports that during his uh, uh, term in office before he was ousted yesterday, uh, there were protests against him. But now, of course, there have also been uh, supporters who've been opposing uh, his ouster. So could you give us a sense of uh, uh, how people perceive his, his presidency?
6: Um, I think up to this point, these colliding visions that I explained a minute ago, so you know, it's they are trying to remove him because, you know, these these political forces are being racist or um, the the fact that, yes, he is a a corrupt leader had been polarizing civil society to a large degree. But I think it has been symptomatic of the view, not necessarily around Castillo, but around Castillo's attempted coup to see multiple organizations of civil society, including universities, including research institutions, including um, associations, organizations that up to this point have remained fairly independent and to some degree questioning the real motives of the Congress to remove Castillo, uh, standing against... Castillo's measure to dissolve the Congress and to centralize power in the fashion and in the way that he tried to yesterday. Um, I think there is a form of consensus that is probably going to get some nuance over the next few hours, if not few days, about Castillo's illegitimacy to try to do what he tried to do uh, and yet a lot of expectation around where are we headed next? What's going to happen with the presidency of Dina Baluarte? Um, upon being sworn in as president, she has asked for some sort of political truce to establish a cabinet and a government of, as as she called it, all blots, all political forces, all political alignments. Um, to what degree that's going to happen? I, I, I am skeptical that the Congress will give her a truce. I think we're going to see more and more evidence that yes, there was a, an agenda that is that exceeds the removal of Castillo, and it is about empowering once again, not necessarily Keiko Fujimori, but a certain vision of crude politics that Fujimorismo has represented very well up to this point. That is this sort of like business oriented uh, neoliberal. Uh, capitalist view in which the state is nothing but this sort of reward or vehicle for the conduction of uh, all kinds of uh, crude politics and businesses. Um,
0: <clears throat> Tell us, sir, is quoting uh, Evo Morales, the former president of Bolivia, uh, to- Bolivia, talking about his deep concern over what's happening in Peru, saying, we see once again that the Peruvian oligarchy and the U.S. empire do not accept that union and indigenous leaders reach the government to work for the people. And AMLO, the president of Mexico, said something similar and said that they forced him into a position where he then made mistakes. Do you share this assessment? And you mentioned Fujimori. Um, uh, talk about her significance and how she is tied into this oligarchy, like her father was.
6: Uh, absolutely, Amy. Um... So one of the narratives that I have resisted since the election of uh, Pedro Castillo is related to the idea of seeing his indigenous and campesino and even unionizing origins as necessarily left-leaning. Right? I think there, is a, there has been a fair share of essentialization around the figure of Castillo, assuming that just because he comes from indigenous origins, he comes from campesino politics, he comes from some sort of grassroots um, um, political origins, he necessarily has to be a a left-leaning political figure. Um, One of the points that I mentioned to question that essentializing narrative was, for instance, his evangelical orientation, which made him really socially conservative. He ran on a very socially conservative uh, platform. And on the other hand, the fact that he was a Rondero, he was a, a campesino militia member, which, sure, you know, campesino militias play a huge role in the civil war in Peru between 1980 and 2000, but they continue to be a form of paramilitarism that I believe should come under scrutiny uh, with a, a less sort of like um politically essentializing uh, lens. Um So... You know, I think Morales and López Obrador's support of um, Castillo's uh, administration and his their, their um, condemnation of um, his removal plots into this essentialized view around uh, Castillo as being indigenous, therefore being leftist. Um, on the other hand... Um, it is unquestionable that uh, Fujimorismo has been, since the 1990s, the primary political force in Peru and, therefore, the primary responsible for establishing everything that we associate with uh, neoliberal politics, with uh, the establishments of a state administration as just securing market-oriented policies and politics, and the market fundamentalisms that have ruled in Latin America over the last uh, three to four decades. And in that sense, Keiko Fujimori, um, as the daughter of Alberto Fujimori and the new um, leader of Fujimorismo, has tried to encapsulate the idea that um, the original neoliberal reformations conducted by his father were responsible for reinvigorating and bringing up Peru from a situation of almost complete collapse and meltdown, and therefore could continue to be responsible for bringing Peru after its bicentennial to the next stage of development. Uh, that next stage of development, of course, is just securing at all costs, all forms of uh, integrities and um, protection for conducting business businesses at whatever expenses Um, extractive businesses, crook businesses, um, mafia-like businesses, and, you know, this alignment between capital and and, and corrupt politics represented by Fujimorismo are behind everything that has happened in Peru over the last 40 years in terms of the deinstitutionalization of the country and of the Peruvian state.
0: We want to thank you so much for being with us. We'll continue to follow these fast-moving developments in Peru. Javier Puente, Peruvian scholar, associate professor and chair of Latin American and Latino studies at Smith College in Massachusetts. Next up, we go to Moscow to speak with a prominent Russian dissident, as Vladimir Putin admits the war in Ukraine will be a, quote, long process. And this breaking news, the, NBA, the WNBA star Brittany Greiner has been freed. Stay with us. What if all the Would melt into one single place And intertwine the human race with other kinds Place by a big thief. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheik. We go now to Moscow to look at the war in Ukraine and U.S.-Russian relations. This breaking news, the WNBA superstar Brittany Greiner has been released by Russia in a one-for-one prisoner swap with arms dealer Victor Booth. Greiner had been recently sentenced to nine years in prison for bringing a small amount of cannabis oil into Russia. Meanwhile, Wednesday, Russian President Vladimir Putin has acknowledged the war in Ukraine has taken longer than expected and predicted the conflict could go on and be a long process. Putin also warned the risk of nuclear war is increasing, but he vowed not to use nuclear weapons first.
1: We
5: don't deploy our nuclear weapons, including tactical nuclear weapons, in other countries, but the Americans do, in Turkey and a number of other countries in Europe. We haven't gone mad. We understand what nuclear weapons are. We have these means, and they are more advanced and modern than in any other nuclear country. This is obvious today. It's a fact. But we are not going to swing it like a razor running around the world. But, of course, we proceed from the fact that we have got it.
0: Putin's comments came as Ukraine's government says Russian artillery fire killed 10 people, wounded many others Wednesday in the eastern Donetsk region. Meanwhile, Ukraine's national electrical grid operator announced new emergency cuts to try to repair energy infrastructure damaged by Russia. This week, the United Nations reported more than 17,000 civilians have been killed since Russia's invasion, including 419 children we go now to Moscow, Russia, where we're joined by Boris Kagarlitsky, Marxist theorist and Russian dissident, professor at the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences, and a contributor to the Russian dissent project. His recent translated piece into English appears in Links International Journal of Socialist Renewal, headlined Putin's Russia, War Fatigue Sweeps the Ranks. Boris Kagarlitsky, welcome to Democracy Now! If you could start by responding to this breaking news Brittany Greiner released in a one-to-one prisoner swap with the arms merchant Victor Boot. The significance of this?
7: Well, first of all, hello. I'm very happy to be here on your show. And, uh, well, then I think uh, inside Russia, uh, the Boot case is not very prominent. Of course, uh, well, in uh, Boot was uh, as we know involved in uh, arms trade and by the way he traded arms of uh, four uh some guerrilla groups in Latin American America among other things uh it is very clear that Boot was somehow connected to Russian uh, intelligence services and uh, that's why he was badly needed uh, to come back to Russia uh, from the point of view of uh, the government, uh, though I don't think it is a major use for Russian public, uh, because people are much more worried and much more interested in following what happened recently when uh, supposedly Ukrainian uh, drones uh, managed to reach uh, some uh, airfields uh, inside Russia, very deep inside Russia, like in Saratov region, so they attacked an airfield, a, a military air base, where they managed supposedly to damage a few uh, strategic bombers, which shows that the outreach of for Ukrainian forces in terms of um, bringing the war back into Russia is uh, getting much, much more serious. Uh, so uh, that is really the news which is discussed, and that is really very important because it really brings the war. Uh, back, so to speak, back uh, to the doorsteps of of Russian households.
4: And so Boris, could you explain uh, what the perceptions of the war have been uh, over these last many months and how that might be changing precisely because of this incident that you mentioned, uh, the attacks on the two Russian airfields by Ukrainian drones?
7: Actually, there were three uh, airfields because it was one in Rezan, one in uh, Engels near, near Saratov, and also one in Kursk. But anyhow, uh, well, you see, Russian society used to be, and to some extent even now uh, remains, uh, very apolitical and very apathetic. So in that sense, maybe it would be difficult to understand abroad, but most Russians uh, didn't acknowledge till very recently that there was a war. Uh, whatever you call it, special operation or whatever, um, most people didn't care about something happening abroad. And as long as there was a professional army fighting somewhere abroad, nobody cared. And now the situation is changing uh, for two reasons. One reason is uh, that uh, there was this so-called partial mobilization, which didn't really work out uh, the number of people who left the country to avoid mobilization is at least uh, two times uh, bigger uh, than the number of uh, people whom they managed to mobilize. And don't forget that uh, it seems that there are quite a lot of people who managed to uh, hide, uh, hide themselves away from the mobilization. So they seem to fail to reach their. Uh, numbers which they originally planned, uh, and uh, it seems that there there was a major major political failure and major political disaster accompanying this uh, attempt, uh, because uh, people who till very recently didn't care about the war now started to care, and of course it doesn't mean that people are opposing the war so to speak en masse. Uh, people are worried. That's a more adequate term. So people are not supporting the war, but they're not um, opposing the war either. It's a very kind of confused uh, situation, a very confused feeling. And uh, still, uh, it looks like the popularity of the war among those groups which did support the war is uh, decreasing very, very rapidly. Because uh, before I have spoken about uh, the majority of Russians who are apolitically, who are not interested in, in politics and foreign politics and even military events. Uh, but uh, there is also a minority, which, um, which is very political, which is interested in politics and so on. And this minority, of course, was badly divided. Uh, because there was a segment that supported the war, supported the government, and the segment which opposed the war. So within this segment, section of the population, the situation is changing very dramatically, because the numbers of those who support the war are falling down very fast, and the numbers of those who are uh, either uh, opposing it or are uh, critical of it are increasing also very, very fast.
4: Boris, could you explain why that's the case? Why are more people among the, uh, including among the elites, why have they come to uh, be more critical of the war or oppose the war? And you also said earlier that uh, almost twice as many or more than twice as many uh, people fled uh, Russia as were mobilized. And this doesn't take into account, as you said, the people who simply disappeared and and did not participate in the mobilization. Where did the Russians flee to uh, and is there any sense of their returning?
7: Well, let's start with those who are leaving the country. Uh, young people, both, of course, mostly male guys, but also their, their families and their their well, wives and girlfriends uh, and their children are leaving. Uh, mostly to Kazakhstan, uh, also Kyrgyzstan. Uh, uh, or Kyrgyzstan as the country is called now Uh, they're also leaving for uh, Georgia for Armenia Uh, some managed to go as far away as to Western Europe or even to Latin America Uh, I know some people who left for for Argentina Uh, so uh, they go Where they can, you know, if you can leave for Kazakhstan you go to Kazakhstan, if you can only leave for to leave for say some other for Georgia, you go to Georgia. Uh, The point is that uh, Kazakhstan, for example, is now uh, seems at the level of the government, but also at the social level, extremely happy with all these Russians coming because these are usually young, educated people who bring in their skills, who sometimes also keep working on a distance and getting the money paid by some Russian companies. So they bring in money Uh, in Armenia, uh, they uh, calculated that their uh, actual GDP growth uh, this year Will increase uh, by thirteen percent, which is an absolute r- record since the independence of Armenia. Uh, and of course, there are also local nationalists who are very unhappy with so many Russians arriving. So it's a it's a mixed uh, bag, so to speak. But in general, for example, if we take uh, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, which accepted the the um, most of uh, the, the the highest numbers of of, of uh, these. Uh, as we now call them, relocationists or emigres, whatever. Uh, these these countries, at the government level, uh, they're praising the arrival of uh, Russians and uh, reasonably so. Uh, there was a very interesting advertisement uh, on uh, Kazakh television. Uh, they were actually advertising chocolate, local uh, brand of chocolate called Kazakhstan. And uh, uh, there is a Russian refugee who is moving, crossing the mountains somewhere in a very, very uh, kind of exotic uh, environment. Uh, so he's uh, crossing the mountains somewhere in, into Kazakhstan, and then a Kazakh uh, uh, riding a horse arrives uh, to him, gives him uh, this uh, piece of chocolate and says, taste freedom.
0: Uh, <laughs> let me ask you, do you think this war will end? I mean, the Brittany Griner being released in this one-to-one um, swap with the prisoner known as the merchant of death, Victor Boot, who you say is clearly tied to the Russian government, means that the U.S. has been directly negotiating with Russia. And in fact, um, Biden had said a while ago that, yes, uh, he would directly negotiate when it came to Brittany Griner. And since then, he has said he is open to negotiations, to speaking directly with um, Putin. This last week with the big state uh, meeting with uh, Macron, the first state visit to the White House, Macron has been repeatedly talking to Putin and probably a back channel for the United States. What are your thoughts on how this is going to end? And how important do you think is it for Putin's survival, political survival in Russia?
7: Well, it will end badly for us in Russia. Uh, I failed to answer the previous question, by the way. Why are Russian elites uh, are so worried and um, feeling so uncomfortable about what is happening, and the answer is very simple: Russia is losing the war, and Russia is going to lose the war inevitably. So this is uh, a very, uh, a very dramatic, the uh, dramatic news for for the Russian public, uh, but now it is what is happening is that Russian public is beginning to understand this reality. What is the real meaning of defeat? That's the big question, because uh, the war is already lost in some way, but the question is what's going to be the price and the meaning of defeat. And, uh, well, first of all, uh, I think there is no way uh, Ukrainian troops will stop unless Russian troops get back to their starting positions, to the position they used to stay uh, on February twenty, the twenty-fourth. So, no matter who negotiates and what is on the negotiation table, uh, that's not going to stop till uh, Russian troops are back to their original positions. However, the situation now is getting much worse because in Ukraine there are some radical voices which are saying that they have to get further into Crimea and into uh, uh, Donetsk and Lugansk republics, uh, which, uh, as you know, which are separatist republics, which were, uh, which declared their independence as uh, early as in 2014. And Crimea, as we know, was annexed by Russia also in 2014. So, uh, well, uh, as you see, uh, Putin started with a claim to get new territories, integrate new territories um, into Russian Federation, now there is a danger of losing uh, what they uh, already uh, used to have before the beginning of the war. And uh, this is definitely a disaster for Putin and for his regime. However, the question is, what's going to follow? Because even if uh, things uh, turn out so badly and so nasty for Putin, and even if the military uh, finally uh, managed to make him resign, which is not uh, not excluded, uh, then the question is, what kind of country are we going to inherit after Putin is gun?
4: And what kind of country do you imagine that might be?
7: It's a very divided country at this point. It's a very divided country, facing a tremendous uh, political, but also social crisis, with a society which is not used uh, for, to organize itself, not used to, uh, to do politics, so to speak. And we have to learn, uh, as a collective, as a society, uh, to organize ourselves, to defend our interests. In that sense, you see, we can speak about um, whatever happens, say, in Latin America, for example, but we have to understand that the level of mobilization of Latin American societies is much higher than that of, uh, uh, say, Russian society today, and uh, well, uh, this society is uh, uh, failing, uh, uh, lacking the experience, lacking the experience of uh, of self-organization, and uh, uh, that's why it will be very difficult.
4: And, uh, Boris, if you could just say, going back to the uh, question of uh, how Russia is faring uh, militarily in the conflict, you've written as well about the role of the Wagner Group, not just in in Ukraine, but but beyond Ukraine. Could you talk about the role that they've been playing in this war, and in particular, the extent to which their aims differ uh, from the aims of the Russian military?
7: Well, uh, the so-called Wagner Group is a private military company, uh, which is more than just a private military company. It's just a private army uh, organized by Evgeny Prigozhin, who is a uh, former felon. uh, And uh, his army is uh, uh, not completely, but uh, to some extent, composed of uh, uh, criminals, who uh, are uh, released from uh, labor camps, from uh, uh, criminal um, custodies, uh, and from custody. So, so uh, that's it's uh, a really dangerous uh, group of people. Uh, there are already cases where they're uh, known to be involved in um, crimes not only against uh, civilians in Ukraine, uh, but also against civilians in Russia proper. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, uh, Prigozhin and his friend uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, who is now the head of uh, Chechen Republic, uh, they are well. They are trying to well to get uh, some. I don't know some portion of uh, real uh, political power and influence. Um, privatizing uh, to some extent certain uh, public and state functions. Uh, this is very dangerous, though I am not that pessimistic because I think that the military already understood the, the den- where the danger is and there is a growing conflict between uh, Wagner Group and the military. There are quite a few known cases when they started shooting uh, at each other and uh I think that the, the power of the military is uh, uh, much more than the power of much, much, uh, much more serious than the power of uh, of this uh, private army. Uh, so in that sense, I think if uh, uh, Putin is forced uh, to leave, which, which is not guaranteed, of course, but it's not excluded either, uh, then uh, we can... Uh, also, uh, and wit- uh, also, um, witness some sort of short civil war between military and the, uh, the Wagner group. But it's not going to last for very long because the the military are much stronger.
0: Boris Kagarlitsky, do you fear for your own safety as we speak to you in Moscow?
7: Mm-hmm. Not more than anybody else in in Russia these days. You know, the government declared me a foreign agent, though they failed to explain uh, a foreign agent or for which country am I? Uh, uh, anyhow, n- well, no, I I, I don't think uh, you have to be so much afraid. I I've been uh, jailed in in Russia f- at least uh, for two twi- times. I was. Uh, uh I was here for many years uh, through all sorts of different changing regimes and uh, well well it, it's an interesting time coming and Boris,
4: finally, we just have a minute, but could you explain the impact? What's happening? How are ordinary Russians uh, suffering from this war in terms both of, of sanctions, uh, economic conditions, uh, employment, inflation? If you could talk about how the war is impacting ordinary Russians.
7: Well, actually, economic situation is deteriorating, but there uh economic situation in Russia was deteriorating for nine years. It has been deteriorating for so long. And uh, so that says uh, this is kind of business as usual. So things are getting worse, and it used to be bad, and it's going to be worse anyhow. That's how people appreciate it.
0: Well, Boris Gogolitsky, we thank you so much for being with us, Marxist theorist, Russian dissident, professor at the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences, contributor to the Russian Dissent Project. We're going to link to your translated piece into English that appears in Link's International Journal of Socialist Renewal headline, Putin's Russia War Fatigue Sweeps the Ranks. He's speaking to us from Moscow, Russia. Next up, we look at the historic Supreme Court case that could upend democracy. Back in 30 Seconds. Nothing could happen by the clean, whose influential and beloved founding drummer, Hamish Kilgore, has died at the age of 65. This is Democracy Now! DemocracyNow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. The Supreme Court heard arguments Wednesday in Moore v. Harper, a case with far-reaching implications for voting rights in the 2024 election and beyond. Justices considered a bid by North Carolina Republican lawmakers to overturn a state Supreme Court ruling that redrew North Carolina. Carolina's congressional map, due to partisan gerrymandering, the plaintiffs want to, the Supreme Court to embrace the independent state legislature theory, which would la- which would hand state lawmakers sweeping authority to override courts, governors, and state constitutions. The attorney Neil Katyal argued against the theory on behalf of North Carolina voting rights groups.
3: I'm not sure I've ever come across a theory in this court that would invalidate more state constitutional clauses as being federally unconstitutional, hundreds of them from the founding to today. The blast radius from their theory would sow elections chaos, forcing a confusing two-track system with one set of rules for federal elections and another for state ones.
0: So what is the independent state legislature theory? We'll speak with a voting rights and constitutional law professor in a minute. First, this animated video from the Brennan Center for
1: Justice. So who protects your right to vote? Well, for more than 200 years, governors, state judges and state constitutions have played a critical role. When state legislatures tried to grab too much power, governors vetoed them. State courts struck them down and state constitutions set important boundaries. These are the checks and balances that protect your vote. But these guys are asking the Supreme Court to abandon that history, to eliminate checks on their power so they have nearly absolute control over elections. If they win, lawmakers in your state could eliminate voting by mail, early voting, and automatic voter registration. They could set up endless barriers to prevent you from voting. And they could gerrymander you, making your vote meaningless. All to keep their party in power. And there would be nothing you could do about it. This is what the independent state legislature theory is all about. For more, we're
0: joined by Fernita Tolson, professor of law at USC, that's University of Southern California, Gould School of Law. Professor, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Um, explain what exactly was argued by the, at the, before the U.S. Supreme Court and where the justices came down. Why are people saying this is the case that could upend democracy? So
2: yesterday's argument was actually really, really important for um, the state of our democracy. Uh, What happened in the court below in Moore versus Harper is that the state Supreme Court found that a very gerrymandered uh, congressional map that the state legislature adopted in North Carolina uh, violated the state constitution's free and fair election provision. And so... The state legislature is arguing that this actually violates the elections clause. So the independent state legislature theory provides that when state legislatures are exercising their authority under the elections clause to set the time, places and manner of federal elections, that they can do so free of of the constraints of the state constitution, particularly as that uh, document is interpreted by state Supreme Courts. Um, So the stakes are really, really high because uh, just from a practical standpoint, if a state legislature can operate free of state constitutional constraints, that means that with respect to federal elections, they can remove a lot of the uh, protections that state law provides for uh, voters. A free and fair election provision is very important for ensuring that voters can exercise a right to vote that's meaningful. Um, and it also requires that there are certain protections for voters that remain in place. Uh, so the, depending on how the justices come out, this, this case can have pretty substantial implications for our democracy.
0: So let's turn to the liberal Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan speaking Wednesday during Mm -hmm. the oral arguments. And in all these ways, I think what might strike a person is that uh,
4: this is a proposal that gets rid of the normal checks and balances on the way um, big governmental decisions are made in this country. And, And you might think that it gets rid of all those checks and balances at exactly the time when they are needed most. Because legislators, we all know, have their own self-interest. They want to get re-elected. And so there are countless times when they have incentives to suppress votes, to dilute votes, to negate votes, to prevent um, voters from having true access and true opportunity to engage the political process.
0: So that's Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan. Uh, Professor Tolson, talk about how these justices broke down yesterday um, and give us a specific example of what kind of uh, change, what kind of law could be instituted by legislatures not wanted by the people. Um,
2: OK, so the, the justices broke down um, it actually wasn't along a predictable line. So you have fairly conservative justices such as Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch, who seemed to kind of sign on to, and also Justice Alito for that matter, who seemed to sign on to this idea that some version of this doctrine exists and possibly the maximalist version, this idea that state courts should have no role in overseeing the state legislature's control of federal elections. So it's possible that those three justices could come down and find that You know, that that version of the independent state legislature theory um, should exist. Uh, Then you had the more liberal justices who think that the state court should have a role. This is part of normal lawmaking. It's not clear why uh, state courts should not be a part of this process, particularly since all of the parties seem to accept that the governor can veto a plan. Right. The governor is not part of the legislative body and instead is exercising lawmaking power in this context, And why are we excluding state courts from their ability to provide the normal oversight, which is a check on the state legislature as well? Uh, so you had the um, more liberal justices who seem to sign on the, the, to the idea that the state courts uh, should, should keep a role. Um, and, and that this doctrine, or I'm sorry, this theory should have no place. Uh, but there may be a compromise position here. So the, the question for me coming out of this oral argument is where are justices Kavanaugh, uh, Coney Barrett, and also the chief justice? They they didn't seem to really buy into this idea that state courts should have no role, although they did articulate some concerns with the positions articulated by the uh, the more liberal justices. So For example, um, Justice Kavanaugh seemed to suggest that uh, the Chief Justice Chief Justice Rehnquist's concurrence in Bush versus Gore, which uh, resolved the 2000 presidential election, uh, could potentially be a a compromise position here. So in that opinion, Chief Justice uh, Rehnquist basically said that uh, the, the state court should have a role. Uh, but if the state court departs substantially from state law, uh, then that raises some concerns, right, that, that, that the federal court can come in and stop the state court from doing that. Uh, so so I think Justice Kavanaugh has seen that as a, a, a compromise position that could work. Um, Justice Coney Barrett, for her part, uh, she also seems skeptical of the state legislature's argument that state courts play no role. And in particular, the uh, petitioners here, the state legislature tried they tried to argue that, OK, if we have to say that state courts play a role, then state courts should not be able to police the substance of uh, state regulations. Instead, they should be limited to just policing the procedure or the mechanism by which the state law is adopted. And so what that looks like here is that you have a gerrymandered plan. The state court cannot strike it down under the state constitution because that will be weighing in on the substance of the plan. But alternatively, if there's some, you know, procedural regulation that the state legislature has violated. Perhaps the state court can then weigh in on that. Um Justice Coney Barrett seems somewhat skeptical of this substance procedure distinction because oftentimes it's very difficult to have a clear line between substance and, and procedure. For example, Justice Sotomayor uh, really honed in on this point. She gave um, the attorney for the state legislature this hypothetical where she's basically like, look, what if you have a state constitutional provision that requires that redistricting plans be adopted in a special session? And the state legislature violates that and adopts the redistricting plan during a regular session. Is that a substantive decision if the state court strikes it down or is it a procedural one? Well, the attorney for the state legislature said that is a procedural decision. And that just seems really. No, I'm sorry. He said that it's a substantive decision. And it just seems really, really odd because it's clearly procedural. It has nothing to do with what's in the plan. Instead, it has something to do with how the plan is adopted. Um, so the substance, the substance procedure distinction is just not a clear one. And I think Justice Coney Bear really had a problem with that. So it is entirely possible coming out of this. You can have some version of the theory, but not necessarily the strong version of the theory that is arguably preferred by uh, the more conservative, the more conservative
0: justices. Well, I want to thank you so much, Fernita Tolson, for joining us and explaining this. uh, uh, I think for most people, it sounds just like sort of a legal gobbledygook, but it (laughs) absolutely has such a critical effect on voting in the United States, and we'll continue to follow it. Professor Tolson teaches law at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. That does it for our show. On Friday... Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez will be speaking at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies at 3 p.m. and on Monday at 6.30 p.m. at the CUNY Graduate Center. Uh, He'll be talking about the history of Latinos in America. Visit democracynow.org for all details. I look forward to seeing folks there as we all listen to Juan. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Thanks so much for joining us.